Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Imagine if you could, with a single or a few samples of water collected downstream in a watershed, map all of the biodiversity in that watershed. Instead of sending teams to survey the different bird species, placing camera traps, hoping that you capture these crucial species, you can use environmental DNA to map all of the species from bacteria to blue whales. And if you do that regularly, you can actually see if the biodiversity is increasing or decreasing. This is already possible around mining areas and conservation areas. And imagine applying this to landscapes full of agriculture. And what if we add soil sampling and even more cutting edge air sampling to monitor the biodiversity in a landscape? Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with the head of nature positive supply chains at Nature Metrics, the home of cutting edge biodiversity monitoring. Powerful, scalable biodiversity data delivered safely and sustainably using DNA. From bacteria to blue whales, they monitor biodiversity in contexts ranging from conservation to environmental impact assessments. Welcome, Kath. Hi, great to be here. And shout out, first of all, to Paul Chatterton, who mentioned Nature Metrics that I didn't know about yet. Uh, a shame on me, obviously, and got very, very interested in, in what you are doing in the conservation space and starting to look at the agriculture space. So we'll unpack all of that, what it means they, they're using DNA, what it means the water side, how can you measure blue whales and, and all of that. But let's start with a personal question. How did you end up going this deep into biodiversity? So I think... My whole life has really been around biodiversity and nature. I mean, as a kid, I loved being around animals, being outside. I grew up in New Zealand where we have amazing biodiversity on our doorstep. And it really, as I, as I grew up, it was what I wanted to do as, as a career choice. I sort of studied zoology at, at university and then really became aware of the challenges that the world's nature is facing and decided that that was what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to try and help restore nature, biodiversity, to make sure that we were going to have something around for future generations. There are many different paths that you could have, even in that specific, let's say, tree of life branch, you could have taken and you ended up working at a very exciting startup. Well, what was the journey like? like it, it wasn't straight to that. You've worked in many different places. Like, How did you decide at some point to maybe not stay in academia, but actually to join the corporate world or to join, let's say, the, the commercial world and then ending up at a 
at a startup where life is not always easy and quite exciting, but also quite challenging, I can imagine, compared to being in a university somewhere and, and studying super interesting biodiversity stuff, obviously in New Zealand. I mean, there are places you can spend your whole life studying stuff there, but you decided to move. Yeah. So I, I started off in academia and I love research, but there was this growing frustration about the fact that academic research, so much of it just goes and sits on a dusty shelf and nobody reads it or uses it. And there's this huge disconnect between the practitioners and the people that really need the evidence and the researchers that are producing it. And for me, it was just feels like a really, sometimes a really inefficient way to create impact. You know, you spend years and years trying to answer one very specific question. You then spend years trying to get that published in, in an, as an academic article that nobody reads. So I really wanted to do something that was driving change on the ground a little bit more. So then I moved more into the conservation sector, working with NGOs, with practical projects on the ground. And again, that was great, but I wanted to try and drive impact at a slightly bigger scale. And I was just really conscious through the work that I was doing of the impact that the private sector was having on biodiversity, but also the power that they had to change. So you can see that they can be so nimble, you know, when they're motivated, the private sector can change uh, you know, at a much faster pace than policy can change, for example. And through that, they can have massive impact. So that was when I started to work more closely with corporates on helping them understand how they could start to measure their impacts on biodiversity and then manage manage those impacts. And when you were in academia, I imagine, I've never worked in academia, but it's relatively easy to stay there for a longer, like once you're in, you can stay there for a long time. You said, no, there was this growing frustration with time as well, like not the most efficient way of creating impact. Was that a slowly growing thing or was there one example like, okay, I spent four years studying this one bacteria and then, then it didn't get published or something like, was there a slow process to say, okay, I need to go out of academia or was there one moment that at some point, okay, this is enough and now let's do something else? I don't think there was a single moment, but it was working more with communities on the ground in you know, I, I worked with a project, an amazing project working in West Africa in a protected area. And it's just that disconnect between the practical tools that local communities need to enact change on the ground and the kind of questions that you're answering with some research project conducted by predominantly Western scientists on the other side of the world. But also, you know, you sort of mentioned that you could get comfortable in academia. I think it's really hard for people entering that career space now. There's much less job security. It's driven by grant funding. Grant funding is really competitive, which in itself is a really inefficient use of resources. You spend a huge amount of time and energy chasing grant money with you know 1% chance of success. So just the whole system. It sounds like fundraising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like fundraising, but it, yeah, it's such potluck. So I sort of felt like there was better ways I could be spending my time. And then in the corporate space, at what point did you sort of notice that the tools were missing or the tools maybe were there, but not adequate, not cheap enough, not accessible enough or not specific enough, or maybe too specific. Like what was that process? And then of course, joining nature metrics, which you're going to unpack. 
But what was there, like, okay, there's actually something to do on the tool side and on the practical, like the shelves and order of this sector and not necessarily on uh, also, but we first need to get the tools better to start asking much bigger questions about how to change those supply chains and have those impact, impacts down the road or down the, the watershed. So my work with corporates is really focused on companies with supply chains. So their impacts on nature are really concentrated at the production of the raw materials that they're purchasing. So that tends to be agriculture. So we see in the space of kind of corporates and biodiversity, so the extractive sector, for example, is quite well advanced in how they measure their impacts on biodiversity. But that's partly because they make a lot of money out of a small area of land. And there's also a lot more regulation around it. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Meaning the mining sector, anything that literally digs stuff out of the ground. It's usually, I mean, even though they're big, it usually are relatively concentrated on around and in the mine. And there's a lot of regulation around what they can dump in terms of water use, et cetera. Like they're under, uh, under a lot of scrutiny compared to some other also extractive sectors that maybe they dig a bit less deep, like a lot of the <laughs> players in the agriculture space. Yeah. So the mining sector, I mean, also infrastructure. So people building things. Yeah. Those sort of sectors, they've, they've got a much longer history of trying to understand their impacts on biodiversity. But like I say, they've got the money to spend on it. So they can send out teams of surveyors uh, to these places, to you know, these technical experts that can go out in the field and identify birds and mammals and fish. And- so how does that work? Let's say I own a mine in, let's say, in West Africa, and I need to, because of regulation and because of my own policy, assess the impact on biodiversity. I fly in a team. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Like, how does that work? And what do they do? Like, how should I imagine that process currently works or used to work or currently works if I want to understand my impact of this mine on biodiversity? So I'm not an expert in this sector, but yes. So in general, they'll start off with environmental impact assessment. You'll normally have some sort of desk-based assessment where you're kind of trying to understand what the risk is. Is this mine in an area with lots of endangered and protected species uh, and important habitat? But then, yeah, absolutely, you will need experts in the field. And sometimes they may have access to local experts, but a lot of the time they won't. And so they will be flying in teams of people um, who have expertise to go out and, and survey these sites for different birds, etc. So they go around and spend weeks in the areas or a lot, quite a few days, I'm imagining, to survey and to capture the biodiversity, the full scale, which is super difficult and very expensive, I'm imagining. Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine that when you then think about a different sector like agriculture, it's just not feasible. (laughs) You can't send out teams of experts to a farm where the profits that you're making out of a hectare are just a fraction of what a mining company is going to be making out of the same area of land. So the challenge that I was working with, with supply chain companies, how do you create a scalable way of monitoring your impact on biodiversity when you potentially have thousands of suppliers and, you know, 
thousands of suppliers who are producing commodities but aren't making huge margins off that. So you're not and there's also not that same regulation, regulatory incentive to spend lots of money on this biodiversity monitoring. And so what was the solution you came up with or one of the solutions? Like what was the direction in going, okay, we cannot fly in teams of people and send them two weeks into farm areas or whole watersheds to start surveying the amount of birds and the amount of insect wildlife and use it as a proxy to see what's happening. That would be amazing in many cases, but it's also incomplete and very, very expensive. So that's not an option. So what are other, I mean, people talk about satellite, remote sensing, sensors, etc. but you took a different route to a potential solution. Yeah, absolutely. So remote sensing is a great option, but it doesn't really let you see individual species you can't necessarily see biodiversity from space. So that was when I came across Nature Metrics, which surveys biodiversity by looking at the DNA that species leave behind in the environment. So it's a bit like crime scene forensics, but for animals. So we can collect uh, through samples of water or soil and even air. Uh, you can collect a sample and then we can process that in the lab and look for these little fragments of DNA that species have left behind. And the thing that really appealed to me is that uh, I love spending time in nature. I love watching animals and birds, but I'm a terrible field biologist. Why would you say terrible? What is a, what does a good field <laughs> biologist look like and why would you be a terrible one? Well, so for example, I've spent a lot of time working with ornithologists, so bird experts, and a lot of time working with the data sets that they produce. But these are people that can go out in the field and they can identify a bird species by song, normally from quite some distance away, and they can normally tell you where, you know, 10, 20, 30 meters away that bird is. And to me, I, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> but it sounds like something, yeah, we can do, let's say, if you would record that, in this case, it would be audio waves, obviously, like a computer would be able to tell you as well. Like there, we can train software to do that at some point. I'm not sure, like the, but the acoustic space feels like something, okay, I, I would I meet, we're recording this now. So I'm in my simple mindset thinking, okay, that's a fixable thing, but it's only a very small part of the biodiversity of a place to capture that, analyze that, and then... But you're saying we're capturing, we're doing water samples, air samples, and soil samples, and then give you almost a full spectrum of what has been living and now has let something go, which could be which could be poop, which could be other DNA, which could be a lot of different things, has been living upstream or at least where the wind or the water came from. And quite and that's I think the interesting piece. You're saying 10, 20 meters, but in this case, if you do this analysis, it can be a much larger area that you can sample with a few samples only. Yeah, potentially. So acoustics is another fantastic technology and there are some really amazing people working on that. But as you say, with so we call it environmental DNA. So that's the fragments of DNA that animals are leaving behind in the environment. And so with eDNA, we can sample like the whole diversity of life. So we can look from bacteria to blue whales, uh, I think, as we mentioned earlier. And for me, what's really exciting about DNA is that it's, gives us this really unbiased view of the ecosystem. So a lot of these traditional surveys led by technical experts in the field, they're focused on those really charismatic species. So the birds and the chimpanzees and elephants. And, and even in the birds, maybe the ones we know the song of, the ones we don't know, we are not even captured, I'm mentioning. 
bird experts would probably know, be able to cover everything that was in the relevant local environment. But whilst, you know, those charismatic species are the things that we really connect to and think about when we think about nature, that is not necessarily the biodiversity that's fundamental to, it's not necessarily the biodiversity that's fundamental to a functioning ecosystem. So that's not necessarily the biodiversity that is really underpinning our economic systems. Which would be the bacteria, the insects, like the non-sexy ones, basically, are the ones we yeah. actually should be. And we're not following them. Would you say we have no really good like overview in many places, like many conservation areas, but also many farms for sure? Most of it is sort of in the dark. Absolutely. So the soil microbiome is fundamental to global agriculture. You know, without a functioning microbiome, we don't have crops. But we know just, you know, a tiny amount about the bacteria and the fungi and the insects that are living in the soil and how different combinations of different species are important for making crops grow. And so how did you end up then? So you found Nature Metrics, you mentioned, and then like, now I think it's time. Like, what is Nature Metrics doing? analyzing this eDNA and, and what does it tell, like what are typical clients you work with or customers you work with, typical use cases where you might be measuring the blue whales or, or the bacteria or both. And so what should people imagine? Like, okay, it's not, we're not sending a huge team listening to the songs of birds, but we're doing something else and we're getting a different image or maybe a better or more accurate or more relevant image of the area we want to serve it. So we have a huge range of clients. So as I mentioned previously, a lot of our work is with the extractives sector, so mining companies, infrastructure, so property developers. And what we're doing in those sectors is we're replacing the need to send out these huge teams of technical experts to the field. You're not making friends with that, I think, <laughs> because this used to be, I think for a lot of these technical experts also, I'm not saying nice trips, but important trips and relevant trips. But yeah, you're undercutting them probably by a significant amount in terms of price and I mean, yeah. So you still need people out in the field, but I think the, one of the fantastic things about what we do is that anybody can take a sample. You don't need to be an expert to take a sample. So how do you take a sample? Walk us through visually, because of course we're in audio. Like if I want to take a sample, how would it work? So for example, probably our, our most developed kits are our water kits. And so with that, you collect a few liters of water um, in a a bag that uh, we supply and then we have a little disc which is a filter which captures the DNA and then you use a syringe you syringe up the water and then you just push it through the filter um, it's just a, a small round disc um, maybe five centimeters in diameter and you will push a, through, a few liters of water through the disc and then that's it. That's your DNA sample. You pop it in the envelope and you send it back to our labs and we then process that in the lab. And so I don't have to send water, which probably logistically makes it a lot easier. And then you said a few liters, like in a normal circumstances, how, what kind of area can I cover with that? Or how often should I do it if I'm running a mine of, I don't know, 50 hectares or something like what? It depends on the terrain, obviously, but should I do many samples or is it relatively like the ratio of one disc, like how big is the ratio that I should normally consider? Of course, it depends. It's sort of a million dollar question of how many samples is enough. 
And I can't give you an answer to that because it really depends on the question you're trying to answer and the context. What would I like to see? Yeah. Like how much do you miss in one in a few liters of water? Yeah. yeah. So how sure do you want to be that you've sampled all the biodiversity in the area? You need a slightly more intensive sampling approach than a, I'm just interested to know generally what's here. And, and then the next step, step is kind of, do you want to be able to track changes through time? But in general, you can sample at a much lower field work effort than you would with a traditional survey approach. And if you're thinking about things like water catchments, it can be a really effective way of sampling biodiversity at that catchment scale because DNA does, of course, move with the water. So if you're sampling downstream, you are capturing some of the biodiversity from upstream as well. And you've seen surprises in there, right? In conservation areas where people thought, I think Paul mentioned at Chatterton of that certain things were or extinct or didn't were living anymore in that part of the river system and only in the other part. And actually the DNA showed that they were absolutely also living on in other areas than we thought until now. Because of course, if you have a very thick jungle, for example, yeah, we can only go so far with the search teams and the DNA doesn't lie. Like if it's there, it, it had to be upstream in the watershed somewhere. It's not that it just comes, it doesn't go up <laughs> upstream by itself. Yeah, we've had some great examples of yeah species that are new to an area that we've rediscovered. But I think one of my favorite examples is the pygmy hippo, which is, as you might guess, it's a tiny hippo. <laughs> it lives in West Africa. It's incredibly rare and endangered. I worked on this conservation project in Sierra Leone, and we knew there were pygmy hippos around this national park. But you could, ha you, I mean, people that had lived adjacent to that national park their whole lives had never seen the pygmy hippos. And we spent a huge amount of money on putting up camera traps and doing all sorts of surveys to try and find these pygmy hippos. <laughs> you know, and you might get one photo across thousands of nights worth of camera trapping effort. And then when you use an eDNA approach, you can just take samples of the water and there are pygmy hippos all over the place. Can you see how many as well? Or you can maybe see over time if it increases or decreases. Like how likely is it that this DNA mixes like in water in terms of like it gets picked up? Probably that's research you're doing now. Like what is the ratio of missing things versus capturing it even if you like, how big was this watershed and how many samples did you have to do? Or was it literally, like you said, a few liters and we understood that in this national park or around it actually were quite a few pygmy hippos? So it was more than it was more than a couple of liters to to find these particular pygmy hippos, um, and this particular project was in Liberia. Uh, so we don't you can't directly equate the the we sort of look at more presence absence of animals. So sometimes if you have a greater amount of DNA in your sample, that tends to correlate quite well with abundance, but it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. It's not a gram to pygmy hippo ratio. No, that's, yeah. uh, that will be too. But you know the direction. Like if they suddenly disappear or the quantity starts increasing over time in multiple samples, I mean, there's an indication of something is, is happening. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're going back to the same place at the same time of year to repeat the sampling and looking at the same species, then that gives you a great way of looking at trends. And we also within Nature Metrics have a fantastic team of data scientists who are working on, you know, amazing modeling techniques, which help translate their kind of that one or two or hopefully more samples into 
what is the likelihood that we missed a species that was actually there? And what have you done any work around the agriculture part of this? Because I, runoff is a huge issue. As I said before, somebody, I don't remember which farmer said it, like it's probably the best way to analyze a farm or to know if a farm is going in the right direction or not, is to analyze the water that leaves the farm at the lowest point on the farm. But of course, these are also extractive industries, but not as profitable as, as certain other ones. So have you done any work in agriculture? And if not, why and how can we fix that? So agriculture is an emerging sector for us. So we can see lots of potential applications of the technology. So as you mentioned, we can look at water quality. Um, so there are, you know, groups of particular species that are really good indicators of whether water is uh, polluted or, or not polluted. So what we're working on at the moment is how do we turn our kind of lists of species into useful metrics that can then inform decision making. Um, so freshwater pollution indices are, are a great application of our technology. But of course in soil I think the, the most exciting thing is looking at the soil microbiome. So yeah, with a small sample of soil we can look at the bacteria, the fungi and the invertebrates that are living um, in that soil and start to understand how that correlates with a healthy or regenerative soil. And you mentioned probably our water part is the most developed. What is different when you're analyzing soil? And could you be analyzing soil also indirectly through water that is runoff that went through the soil? Like how different is that approach if we say, okay, we want to analyze a few liters of water and it pretty, and if we do that in a number of places, it gives us a good idea of the watershed, which sounds like huge. In soil, I don't know, it feels immediately to me that, okay, we have to do more of that because it's more local. Is that a, a right a right thought or how different would soil sampling or soil analytics be compared to water? And then we go to air, which also sounds amazing, but I don't know how, I cannot even imagine how to do that. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. I think the biodiversity in the soil is not moving in the same way that the DNA in a waterway is. So you need a different sampling approach. So if you want to characterize the microbiome of a field, you'd want to take probably multiple samples of that field. Or if you are not that worried about the variation within a field, you just want kind of to know in general what the microbiome looks like across that field, you can use lots of subsamples. So you take lots of subsamples across your field, a bit like you might do for chemical sampling, mix it all together, and then you kind of get an average result. And then do you need to, because you cannot push it through a filter, like then you need to run water through it to sort of dissolve it, or how does it work? So we don't use a filter for the soil samples. You would literally send us a small, yeah, few grams of soil, and that's what we would analyze in the lab. And would, uh, I mean, how different is that result, or would that result be compared to, for instance, after a rainy day, taking a bit of the runoff water from a field? Would they be able to tell us fundamentally different things? Or would you say, no, no soil sampling is in this case better, more, more complete? Or because as we see with the conservation side, like this the bacteria or the DNA left over, they travel with water. How would that differ? Or it's not such a relevant approach to look at that low, like the water running off from a farm or travel through a farm? I think it would depend on your question, but I think runoff, you wouldn't get the same you wouldn't get a very accurate representation of kind of the soil on the field from which the runoff came, I guess. 
and then air how would air or how does air work like an air sample i mean i can imagine you open a pop and you close it but that's probably not the approach so this is a cutting edge that's why i want to know uh, yeah. <laughs> work so this is probably a great example actually going right back to academia <laughs> i mean nature metrics work is founded off the back of um so our founder cat bruce she did her phd on metabarcoding which is what we call, that's what we call when you're processing a sample and looking at lots of species, basically looking for all the species in that sample. So really, Metrics was founded on the idea of, well, we've done cool science, but we really need to find a way to apply it and have impact. So AirDNA is complete cutting edge. It's work that we're looking at in collaboration with academics that are leading on this. The idea is, is that you know you have some sort of suction system to filter the air itself. But it's the same idea. I mean, we know that DNA exists all around us. We're all shedding DNA the whole time. Animals are no exception. We can capture that. Animals and trees and plants, etc. Although probably in water, it's, I wouldn't say easier, but it moves downstream. Like you sort of know where it comes from and where it didn't come from before but of course it could be influenced by rain it could be influenced by many many other things now i'm just thinking that it's not that easy but air feels like it just moves randomly so how do you contribute that to a place or a biome or a watershed or but then it probably tells you a lot more different things if you're able to do that so sure air is going to move and water moves but the reality is that you still get a much stronger signal from things that are in their immediate environment so you're much more likely to pick up the person standing right next to the filter than you are the rhinoceros that's 20 kilometers away. True. And and so you said agriculture for us is an emerging space. What needs to happen? What would be an ideal agriculture client in the space? Could be, of course, a large food company or something. But if somebody's listening, what would they should imagine as a as an ideal case to push the boundaries or to be on the cutting edge? to do both, maybe both air and water or soil and air, etc. What would really excite you on the agriculture side, on the soil side? So I think we're really interested in soil sampling in, in the agricultural context and working with people that can help us translate the data that we get into meaningful metrics. So the soil microbiome, it's not just a list of species. You don't get a list of 20 birds or whatever. It's thousands of bacteria and fungi and invertebrates and turning that into something meaningful is is much more difficult and it can really depend right i mean uh, the ideal um, ratio of bacteria to fungi in one cropping system might be different uh, for a, a different cropping system or soil type so what we're really interested in is just testing out the approach in as many different contexts as possible. What I'm particularly interested in, though, is how do we create a scalable monitoring system for the agricultural space? So it has to be a different business model to how we operate with extractives because you're not making millions of dollars out of a field. <laughs> yeah. so, except maybe a few small areas where we make very, very particular collective wines for collectors. But the rest of the egg industry, unfortunately, is not operating on those margins. No. So it has to shift from like, a, it has to be a different approach. That's what you're saying. Yeah. 
And so what I'm really interested in is we have all these big corporates who are dependent on agricultural outputs and they're making big commitments to things like regenerative agriculture, how they're implementing those commitments, how they're supporting the suppliers, sometimes a little bit opaque. What I'm really interested in is bringing the corporate players you know, <laughs> to the field level to push them to develop the measurement approaches they need to really evidence the claims that they're making and hopefully supporting their producers in. And for that, I think we need um, yeah, a different scale of approach to monitoring. So, And where I think DNA has real value is, you know, we were talking about water catchment, so monitoring biodiversity at the scale of a water catchment. So can we do that at the same scale for agriculture? So can we start to monitor biodiversity at the landscape scale? So rather than having the onus on an individual farmer to fund the measurement approach himself, we look at the bigger picture, um, we get people to co-invest in the measurement, um, and yeah, we look at kind of measuring those outcomes at a, at a much larger scale. So sort of thinking along the lines of, you know, we, we see landscape and jurisdictional approaches developing as solutions to sustainable commodity production. So let's kind of harness that model and see if we can deploy biodiversity monitoring as part of those programs. And let's say you have a landscape where one or two or multiple corporates are, are buying a considerable amount. So there's an influence, there's an interest to monitor. How would you approach it to figure out where to sample? Like, how do you pick like, okay, we don't work on a farm level, so we can pick any farm or any spot on a farm. How do you normally approach that as well? But how would you do that in agriculture? Okay, what, we have three ways of sampling, where to do what and why, how difficult is that on a, but if you have the whole landscape and there's somebody paying for it, is it then still very tricky to figure out, okay, we have to be there, there and there. And that point probably is not so essential to measure, but it would be nice. Like, how do you prioritize with like you could, of course, you only have limited resources. Not that you can do ten thousand sampling. So, how do you prioritize the spots where you catch air, water, and or soil? So, I think that's probably what we're really looking for partners for the opportunity to test out. Uh, I mean, there are kind of rules of thumb. I mean, you know, you can look at your landscape, you can look at the different crop types and landscape types and habitat types, and you can. Um, you know, break those up and you can sample a bit in those different different types of areas. But it also is driven very much on the kind of information whoever's funding and undertaking the measurement wants to get out of it. Do the farmers want meaningful information that might inform their farm management? Then we probably need to look at, you know, perhaps more intensive sampling at the field level with soil. Are the corporates not so interested in in that, but they want something to tell them about how they're improving charismatic species across the landscape. Then we might look to use uh, the water sampling, for example. So I should have said, water's great because you don't just pick up the species living in the water, you pick up a lot of the species living around and interacting with that water. Not just the hippos, but also the birds. Yeah, But it's a much wider net and doesn't tell you specific on a field level, obviously, like what's if a field is moving forward or not, and if it's improving 
And then, of course, you might have in a landscape also the, the conservation areas where there's a different need as well to what to communicate and what you want to learn. But I think, that, I mean, we keep coming back to that on the podcast as well. The landscape approach is absolutely essential, not just for the biodiversity measurement, but in general, because you want to be changing your practices and improving your land if you're a farmer in a landscape that's also moving forward, because otherwise you're really fighting against way too much. So that seems to be, keeps coming back as an absolutely crucial, crucial piece of the puzzle. For me, I think it's a really practical way of taking corporate engagement in, in agricultural sustainability forward, particularly around the context of biodiversity and nature, because biodiversity is not the same as carbon. A ton of carbon is the same whether it's released in Brazil versus America. Whereas the impact you're going to have on biodiversity is going to be very different depending on your sourcing your ton of soy from Brazil versus America. So context is really important. But of course, these global, global multinationals who are making all these commitments to regenerative agriculture, very few of them have traceability to the site level. They're not working with individual farmers. So I see a key way for them to engage in this space is at that landscape scale because they will know, well, we know we are sourcing soy from the Sahara in Brazil or cocoa from Cote d'Ivoire. So they know the landscapes that they're operating in. And I think that's kind of the right spatial scale for them to engage in sustainability initiatives. Yeah. And then it becomes much more practical as well to, and it is part of that decommodification that you are working in a landscape It's something you can just switch and go to some cheaper soy somewhere else, which happens a lot, but the whole process of decommodifying, it means you have longer ties to the same traders and to the indirectly to the same farmers. And you want to make sure that that is moving forward. And let's say in terms of costs, I'm imagining it's much more bearable to be bearable for the large corporates. Like if you want to, because a lot of them are making huge commitments on carbon as well, and it requires a lot of sampling to, to say something irrelevant about it. Of course, there's no remote sensing, but it has its limits. Like in this is this an easy add-on to that? Like in terms of cost to monitor biodiversity, and like is it would it be easy to add it to these kind of projects because the cost is there but relatively limited? Or also there we have to work to bring down that cost of like some companies are doing in the carbon side, like easy measurement tools, not that deep, but still really innovating on that side or you would you say like actually this is in the grand scheme of things of a landscape approach of a corporate this would be i wouldn't say a rounding error but it's not so difficult to get it into a project like that because it's compared to extension agents changing management different machinery this is relatively small i think it probably is a relatively small cost but there is still a mind shift mindset shift that's needed these big corporates are not prioritizing resources for measurement, I don't think. They don't have the budgets to do this sort of work. I mean, I think there's a there's an obvious business case for it and they're doing all this work on carbon. A lot of the work they're doing on carbon has benefits for biodiversity as well. So for marginal additional investment, they could capture that information and really shore up their sustainability claims. Because if you're doing a soil sample for carbon, I mean, the step to sending it also to you is relatively small. I mean, of course, you have to pay for the analytics, but somebody already did a soil sample. Yeah, it's maybe not quite that straightforward. But if you've got somebody in the field taking samples, 
then absolutely, they could be taking samples for biodiversity at the same time. But traditionally, I mean, we have this challenge that nature has historically been undervalued by our economic systems. I mean, we are in the situation. <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> undervalued is an understatement. It's mostly been at zero or negative yeah, as a cost. Yeah. Not valued. Yeah. I mean, we're in the situation we're in because big corporates, farmers, I mean, we get these ecosystem services for free. And so it does require a change of thinking to suddenly be like, well, there is value in collecting information about biodiversity. There is value that I'm willing to pay for. I mean, I still have a lot of conversations with these multi-billion pound companies where they're expecting biodiversity data to be served up to them for free, to be provided by conservation NGOs. A lot of them are still not quite at the place where they're willing to invest in that data collection. In that, as a crucial, just as they're investing in other accounting parts of their or other systems within their accounting, just to have a good understanding of what's happening in factories, what's happening during their supply chain, sensors here and there to understand if things got frozen or not. I mean, that's all sort of, we take that for granted. That's part of the cost of running your operation. But of course, being able to understand what's happening in the landscapes you're, you're supplying from is just as much part of that as keeping an eye on where your containers are around the world and if the temperature went up too much during the trip or not and if you should be worried about what's coming out when you open it in, in whatever harbor you open your container yeah no that's a very good point actually there's yeah it's and so this brings up a question i always like to ask uh, at the end as well but would it be something like if you had a magic wand and the magic power to change one thing overnight would it be something on that side or something completely different like you can mention anything from global consciousness i usually say better taste or having a carbon price like taking away all subsidies. We've had a lot of different answers to this question. It doesn't have to be <laughs> on corporate biodiversity awareness, but what would you do if you had a magic wand? That's the most difficult question, I think. I mean, fundamentally, I think if we want to reverse the situation we are in, and that is the dual crisis of both nature and climate, we need a way to value and embed biodiversity ecosystems better yeah, in, into our business practices. And I don't think businesses will achieve it alone. I think we need much better regulation. But yeah, if I could wave a magic wand, for sure. Would we have a price on biodiversity? I think is not perhaps quite the place I would take it to. But there needs to be incentives and disincentives for how we operate and use our natural capital. And what if you would be on the other side of the table, not on the corporate side, but let's say on, on the investor side, there are a lot of people, even people are setting up a quite significant funds saying we're going to invest in biodiversity. We're going to put money to work, et cetera, et cetera. Two part question. First part of the question, what would you tell them? You probably meet them sometimes I mean, at conferences, virtually and offline. Like, what would you say to the finance people that are starting to enter the space and say from London City, from Zurich, from wherever, like we want to invest in biodiversity. What would you tell them without starting to laugh in some cases, obviously, because it's uh, quite, it sounds a bit naive sometimes, but how would you approach and say, okay, go and look a bit deeper there, or this is our interesting areas to go deeper into, obviously, without giving investment advice? I think they need to do their due diligence. They need to build good partnerships. You sort of see this narrative of suddenly 
nature exists and has value because finance has realized decided yeah <laughs> decided and you know there are fantastic people that have been working on this challenge for a long time and they have a lot of knowledge so i would say yeah build good partnerships you know with those conservation organizations with, be humble yeah be humble and bring in expertise you are not going to become an expert on biodiversity and nature because you've listened to a few podcasts or <laughs> read a few articles you know i think i would really like to see some people embedding people with backgrounds and expertise in this space you know when they're building these new portfolios or get the, the experts on board as well yeah no i think it's the same we see a lot of i get a lot of decks on carbon companies and are focusing on soil carbon etc and i always click very quickly to the team page first of all see the diversity which is often shockingly low but also where's the farmer like where is the person that actually is dependent on a farm for his or her livelihood and decided that this is an interesting endeavor to spend some of his or her time on which is usually running very very low and most of these shockingly don't have any connection to any farmer and the first question i always ask her when is the last time you were on a piece of land and it's scary to get the answers to that and how much money gets raised and burned and like i think robin o'brien of replant capital mentioned in an interview a long time ago actually say, sees this silicon valley ones raising crazy amounts of money and then not going anywhere because they don't have any product market fit because they didn't really go to the market and they didn't really spend the humble time on farms and I, i'm imagining it's the same in biodiversity like there's a lot to learn on the field and in the field and in the water streams and with the people that have spent a lot of time there so it's yeah absolutely crucial So what would you do if you would be in charge of a large investment fund like tomorrow morning you wake up and have a, a billion dollars or even 10 billion like I, the billions keep growing <laughs> these days with inflation so we might have to put an extra zero but let's say a lot of money or a billion pounds to invest and put to work could be very long-term investments but definitely investments I'm not looking to an exact pound amount but what would you prioritize what would be the main themes or parts or technology or is it investing in like what would you focus on So I think like you've just mentioned the connection to the farmer is key. So investing in farmers, I think particularly smallholders who are going to need the most support in making any big transition. I'm much less interested in big agribusiness. I think if they if they have the will to change, I'm sure they can make the changes, but there are a lot of people that are fundamental to our agricultural systems uh, food systems that will need a lot more support and i think if you can empower them with the right tools and training then then we could make quite a big difference um you know and i guess a frustration i have and is that i mean we see so much of this money it, you know it's it's run by people you know behind desks in europe poor america or wherever it is you know how can we find a much better way of deploying that money with with local communities um you know we see some amazing things that can happen with microfinance for example this project i talked about in sierra leone um there was a cocoa agroforestry project um around this national park and you know but there were there were these fundamental challenges about Uh, you know they were suffering from things like crop raiding 
from animals that were coming from the national park. So how do you, you know, put in place the economic financial mechanisms to ensure that they can value the biodiversity in the national park while also supporting their livelihoods? And, you know, you get these really cool solutions like insur- these little micro insurance systems where, you know, you give them some seed funding and then they're off and running and they have that safety net in case something happens one year. Um, so, yeah, connecting with the farmers, particularly with smallholders, particularly empowering people, you know, who are actually producing the commodities to uh, empower them to make changes. And I guess the other thing that I would uh, be on the lookout for would be investing in innovation. And when you say innovation, what, what do you better air sucking machines? No, what is innovation <laughs> you get excited about or you wish you, we had already and not still being developed? So, I mean, my background, of course, is much more about monitoring and evaluation, which I guess is the less exciting side of a sustainable transition um, if I knew more about innovation that was going to help drive the sustainable practices, great, I would invest in that. But I am really excited about the innovation that we see in better ways to understand our agricultural systems. So whether that's eDNA or some exciting, you know, there's this really cool startup that's using acoustic monitoring to look at pollinator populations, for example. Tell me more about that, because it sounds like we want to interview them. Yeah, no, I think yeah. like the tools, the enabling tools, I think the shovels and things like to how to yeah, build this industry is, is fundamental. Yeah, I mean, I think we have overlooked the value that good monitoring can provide it can inform more effective decisions. It can inform more effective resource use. It can inform more effective investment decisions. And we're just like, we're on the edge of such an exciting space of the deployment of technology to answer some of these monitoring challenges. I mean, I think like a really good example has been um, how deforestation gets monitored and now in international supply chains. We have a global map that gets updated, you know, pretty much every day showing exactly where deforestation is happening in the world. Something like that for biodiversity would be amazing. So if you had that for biodiversity and or a global map for soil health that you could track the changes on an annual or a monthly basis depending on, you know, climate and and other things how cool would that be if you could see soil health or biodiversity from space yeah no i, I we, we just recorded an just uh, a few weeks ago recorded an interview actually with ish and tom on open geo map open geo hub sorry and one of the articles they wrote is everybody has the right to know what's happening on our home planet or on our planet and we were discussing like how do we get access to the satellite data how do we translate it into something useful for the land steward, the farm manager, whoever, like exactly the conversation with here. So I will link that one below as well, because I think we are in the, the crypts of starting to actually know and see what is happening on our home planet. And then hopefully we take action. But first is, is knowing it is no longer good enough to say, okay, I didn't know that tree was being felled, or I didn't know that legal road was being built, or I didn't know that that field was being sprayed, even though we're paying the farmer, or even though the company taking the grain had an agreement that it should be organic or should be beyond organic, et cetera, et cetera. Like that kind of 
level of transparency we need it because we're on a full planet and we're having to manage these resources fundamentally different. So yeah, there's this fundamental way you can use this information to encourage compliance. <laughs> but I think there's also, you can flip it, right? In terms of knowledge is power. And we can also use that to do things better in future, like testing interventions. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we can see the effect of things if we have a good map of biodiversity on even on a landscape level. Like, okay, we start switching certain fertilizer inputs, I mean, especially with these high prices. But in general, we start switching to certain biofertilizers. We start integrating trees into ecosystems. What does it do to the overall ecosystem? Biodiversity is something we, I don't think, have ever really monitored, uh, at, at least not at scale. And then, of course, looking at the climate and, and all of that, like how does it influence that full, the full ecosystem and the full landscape is extremely exciting. Super. Now, I want to thank you so much. I want to be conscious of your time as well. And thank you so much. There's so much more to ask, but we'll have you back and unpack more, especially as you're getting more and more into the egg space, let's say, and the exciting ways of using eDNA into changing management practices and changing large scale or changing the practices at a large scale or at a lot of hectares or acres or whatever we're managing, because that's the impact we need. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Very happy. If anyone has any questions or wants to find out more about DNA-based monitoring, happy to talk to them. Super. Yeah, I'll put quite a few links in the show notes. And so anybody interested to run tests, pilots, etc., get in touch. And uh, we'll get you in touch with Kate, obviously, to start pushing the work more and more into the other extractive industry, which is ag. <laughs> Sounds good. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.